So it's really amazing that we can have um, Ruth with us this morning. You're so, so, so welcome. We know that you are an expert in many fields and we come in really eager to, to learn from you. What I want is everybody to get either their phone or a notepad out, preferably a notepad and a pen. And I want you to take notes. We are going to have a time of questioning afterwards where we can, um, where Ruth is basically saying you can ask me anything. So what I want you to do is I want you to take notes of questions down, you know, oh, I don't necessarily, you know, understand that or agree with that or that's, spot, or that's making me think of this. Um, so if you have, if you could like highlight that, it'd be great to use this time as much as we can. Um, it's a very special morning. Ruth, if I welcome you down and I'm just going to pray for Ruth and then hand over the floor. Yeah, Father God, we thank you so much that there is always more to learn from you. And we thank you for all that you've placed in, in Ruth, God. We thank you for her passion. We thank you for her heart for you. We thank you for her heart for justice. And God, we just want to come with our hearts open, with soft hearts, God. Would you speak to us? Would you move us? Would you challenge us? God, would we go from this place changed because your spirit is here? In Jesus' name, amen. That's fab. Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning. Um, just lovely to come along and to join in and get a bit of a feel for the life of you as a community. Really nice to be able to bring Chloe with me as well. And I've heard various bits and pieces about you and see a bit of Chloe's extended family and, and other community. So it's great and good to hear that you've been going through these five points from, from the 24-7, uh, whatever they're called, values, yeah. Six, are there? Six, oh okay, I thought it was five. I'm from a 24-7 press, church as well, so what do I know? <laughs> yeah, but you, okay, thanks. I'll do a bit of research. So we're going we're gonna to dive in this morning thinking around the topic of justice. Um, and there is there's so much that I could talk to you about with this and so many different angles that I could take. Uh, so I wasn't quite sure how to do it. And that's where it's really nice that we've got questions at the end. Because if there's stuff that you would like me to have covered that I haven't, then just ask me. And that will be an opportunity for me then to talk about other things that maybe I haven't been able to cover. And, and I do want to say justice and mission, and I'm, I'm going to touch on this actually, are so linked. So to be honest, I think it's slightly strange that mission and justice is, is put into two different separate categories because justice is part of mission. You can't do mission without thinking about justice, but we will probably come back to that. But it's great to have some time really to focus in thinking around justice. And it's been a theme of mine really since the beginning of my adult life. Right from early on, there was a period of time, I guess around sort of late teens, early 20s, when I felt like God put me on a, a fast track of understanding around justice issues. I'd been brought up in a thoroughly Christian family, brought up with regular prayer times and had my daily devotions and was from quite a, a sort of evangelistic culture of mission and mission sending and cross-cultural mission and, and all of that side. But I didn't really have a strong understanding around the justice aspect. And I felt that God just put me on, the, on this fast track of learning as he opened my eyes to the reality that he is a God of justice. And I'd never really thought of God in this way or encountered God as a God of justice and felt like I went through a few years where I was really learning a new side to God and was being challenged in myself. What does it mean to worship a God of justice? If I believe that God is a God of justice, what does that mean for me? What does that mean in my life? What does it look like? 
and I began learning around local justice issues. So um, I got a I got a, a job where I was it was very grandly called head of social responsibility for uh, a national organisation, and so I was getting quite involved with. UK-based, kind of community-based issues of justice. We, as a family, we moved on to uh, account what would then have been called a council estate. Now our language is social housing, but back then it was a council estate, so we moved on there uh, just at the start of adult life, really out of a desire to, to, to explore how do I worship a God of justice in my local community, was also having my eyes opened to broader issues of global justice and issues of poverty and the debt crisis and a whole range of different things that were impacting, that are impacting people living in poverty all around the world but wanted to link that up with a, a local understanding as well. So as I was getting involved with issues of global poverty, I felt God challenging me, well, what does that actually look like to live it out locally as well? And so as a family, we moved on to this uh, council estate uh, where I still live and have been involved there for many, many years. I think, oh, I don't know, when did we move on 26, 27 years ago, something like that. And um, for 10 years or so chaired the local community, well, st we started up and then chaired the local community association and really saw that estate transformed from, uh, from an area that was a sink estate. Everyone was on council lists wanting to move off. It was a the dumping ground where problem tenants got put if they got evicted from other places and uh, you wouldn't walk you wouldn't walk around on your own at night and so on transformed now I, I mean I'm looking at Chloe because she knows the area I kind of forget that that's what it used to look like that that's what it used to be like because it just isn't like that now it's now a place that people are on lists wanting to move on it's a beautiful area and it's you just I can't really remember that that's how it used to be. So, so very engaged in trying to live out this concept of justice locally at the same time as exploring the global aspect to it as well and recognising that we live in a world of terrible injustice and terrible inequality and terrible poverty. Um, and if I worship a God of justice, how, what, does, what does that mean for me? How, how do I respond to that? At the same time as discovering and learning and trying to live all of that out, was also having my eyes opened to the environmental issues that go hand in hand with issues of poverty. And when I was at university, I read a little book that was just a very basic book looking at what does the Bible say about the environment. And I'd never, um, well, I think it must have been in there somewhere because the person who recommended the book to me, there must have been a reason why they said, oh, we think you're like that. So there must have been something brewing, but it wasn't really a part of me. And this just opened my eyes to to environmental things in the Bible. And again, as with the God of justice, I realized there was a whole part of my faith that I was missing. And that as I read the Bible, there was a whole part of the, well, I just realized that I read my Bible through completely human focused glasses and that I needed to take those glasses off and see that the Bible isn't only about people, though of course it is very much about people, but actually the Bible is about the whole world, the whole created order. And if I'm only thinking about people, I'm missing a whole chunk of what the Bible has to say. And so that then really started me off being challenged uh, in exactly the same way around a God of justice, thinking, well, 
if, this, if I'm seeing this in the Bible, what does it mean for how I live? And, and as I was reading biblically and theologically around environmental care, so I was reading other things as well that were opening my eyes to the problems and the challenges that our world is facing environmentally. And this is probably 30 years ago, so global warming, as it was then called, was in the sort of fairly early days of being talked about. But even then, 30 years ago, it was coming through pretty clearly that something was happening and something was going wrong around the world. And I started thinking, well, if my Bible tells me that I'm, I'm to be taking care of this world, um, what, you know, my theology has got to be matched by my actions. I've got to live this stuff out. So then began exploring how to actually live this out in, in my own life. So all of this is around bringing together what we see in the Bible with then what, how, we, how we live in our lives. So, so that's a little, a little potted version, a little potted history. Um, well, not a potted history, but a little insight just into where I started from decades ago as God was opening my eyes to these issues. And, and I wanted to go through with you then really why I've been trying to live this stuff out in my life very, very imperfectly. Chloe will tell you, been trying to live this stuff out very imperfectly, but have been trying to live it out in different ways over, the, over it is about 30 years now. Golly, why have I, and particularly as a Christian, as a person of faith, why have I? And I want to look with you at the foundation for me as to why these things have become so important to me. And just so you know where I'm going, I want to look with you at my understanding of God, my understanding of humanity, of people, and my understanding of the world. So let me start with my understanding of God. And I start here very deliberately because everything needs to start with God. So this isn't about a secular agenda. This is about who is God. Oh, sorry. I'm struggling to find my... There we go. Who is God and who is this God who we worship? I, I said I was going to get you to read these out, didn't I? So I didn't have to find the place. Anyway, Psalm 113, which if you've got Bibles, would you like to turn them on? And <laughs> or maybe if you're old-fashioned like me, you might open it up. So Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. And I love this psalm. Um, and find it so interesting. It's this amazing psalm of praise, isn't it? Praise the Lord. And it talks about God's absolute majesty and splendor. He's exalted over all the nations. This verse in verse 6, he stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. I mean, there's this picture of absolute hugeness, isn't there? God is so huge that he has to stoop down 
to look at the heavens and the earth that we think are so massive, but God is so huge that he, he just has to stoop down to look at them. God is almighty, incredible. It's this wonderful psalm of praise. And there is one characteristic of God that the psalmist focuses on. And what is that characteristic? Verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. I think that's so striking. When you think of rulers of our day or rulers back in the Old Testament time, the Babylonian kings or the Egyptian pharaoh, if there'd been a hymn of praise written about them or thinking of our rulers today, if we wanted to extol their virtues in different ways, what would be the things that we would pull out? Well, I suspect that we wouldn't think automatically about how they treat people living in poverty, that that wouldn't be the first thing that we think about when it comes to our leaders. And yet, this is what the psalmist focuses on. God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. It's just a beautiful little summary of who our God is, who we worship. A God who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And we see this characteristic of God all the way through the scriptures. And we see a focus all the way through the scriptures around God being a God of mercy, of love, of compassion, a God who hates injustice, a God who hates oppression, and then a God who calls his people to follow him in that way and to act accordingly. So going right back to the beginning of the story that we have in the Bible, we are created to be in relationship. We're created to be in relationship with God, with other people, and with the wider natural world. We're created to be in relationship with God. We know that. Um, if, you're, if you've got any background in something like the, you might know the Westminster Catechism. Who, why would you know that? That the, the chief end of man is to worship God and to glorify him and to, to be in relationship with God. You know, at the beginning of Genesis 3, okay, we know it's gone wrong, but you get that little picture of God walking in the cool of the evening. That's how it was supposed to be. God and his friends walking in the cool of the evening. We're created to be in relationship with God, but not only with God. We are also created to be in relationship with other people. The first Adam that was created actually it wasn't good for that Adam to be on its own. The Adam was lonely. The Adam wanted a partner, wanted companionship. And so the woman was created. And Adam and Eve, you see the forming of the first human community. We're created to be in community, in relationship. We're also created to be in relationship with the wider natural world. But I'll come back to that. So we are created to be not only in relationship with God, but also to be in relationship with other people. Now, we know that the fall broke that. And we see in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, that the discord comes in. And then the rest of the Old Testament really is the story of those broken relationships with God and with each other and the story of God working to put back to rights those broken relationships. So yes, the story of the Old Testament is the story of God working to bring salvation for his people and then through his people for the, for the whole nations. But it's not only about the people's relationship with God, it's also about the people's relationship with each other. And all the way woven through the Old Testament, you see that it matters how people treat each other. The laws that are there aren't only about how you have a right relationship with God. Actually, pretty much all or nearly all of the laws are about how you have a good relationship with each other. 
and, and are, are about not treating other people badly. And the sacrificial system isn't there only to sacrifice when you've sinned against God. It's there also to sacrifice when you've sinned against other people. To the extent that really sin, sinning against God, is kind of defined as sinning against other people. Righteousness is defined as how you relate to other people and how you practice justice. God isn't really that concerned with whether you practice all the religious rituals properly. God is concerned with how you take care of other people. And you see very strong words in the prophets against those, particularly against the leaders, who are not taking care of others and are not practicing social justice. Oh, and the words of some of the prophets, they're selling the needy for a pair of sandals and they're practicing dishonest trading standards. God, through the prophets, speaks so strongly against oppression and injustice. This isn't only a God who is a God of love and a God of compassion, a God who is for things. This is also a God who is very much against things. He is against oppression. He is against injustice. He is against inequality. And he calls his people to do the same and to be the same. In the words of Isaiah 58, God calls his people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. This is what it means to be part of the people of God, is to be looking after others, to be responding to issues of injustice and poverty. And that continues into the New Testament. It's one of the real hallmarks of Jesus, isn't it? That he spends so much time with people who are on the margins, with people who are oppressed. He comes himself. He takes on human form into a nation that is oppressed. You know, he could have come as a Roman ruler, couldn't he? But he doesn't. He, he identifies with those who are oppressed. He identifies with those who are in poverty, who are on the margins. And all the way through the Gospels, we see that Jesus isn't only interested in a person's individual relationship with God. He's interested in the whole context of a person. Jesus' message and his life is about the spiritual, but it's also about the political and about the social and about the physical. Jesus heals and he brings people back into community. In fact, our, uh, some of the way that we translate things, or that our Bibles have translated things, aren't helpful for us. In a couple of places, you know the story of the woman who's been bleeding and who touches the hem of Jesus' cloak. And in our Bibles, Jesus, uh, it's translated that, that Jesus heals her and says, woman, be healed. Actually, if you look at the Greek, it's the word for saved. And we have that too in one of the stories, I think in Mark, of a man who is set free from demonic possession. And our nice, safe Bibles talk about him being cured. Actually, the Greek for that is saved. Why don't our Bibles actually translate things properly? <laughs> because some of our Bibles represent particular thinking that sees salvation in a very narrow sense as just being about an individual's personal relationship with God. And I have a feeling that might have crept into the division between mission and justice that we have as well. But Jesus doesn't see any such division. For him, the whole thing is together. Salvation is a physical thing. Salvation is a social thing. Salvation is a political and an economic thing. Jesus comes with that very holistic message. And he calls us to do the same. That story that you'll be so familiar with of the Good Samaritan. Do you know it starts off with the person asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, doesn't it? And that's what the story is setting out to answer. And we generally draw from that that our neighbor 
is the person on the other side of the street, um, you know, and we can interpret that in whatever way we want to. And that's okay, you know, that's a good thing to draw from it. But actually, have you noticed Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He turns it on, his, on its head, and at the end of the parable, at the end of the story, he says, go then and do likewise. I.e., it's not about who is my neighbor, it's about are you being a neighbor to other people? So go and do likewise, go and be a neighbor. We are called to be neighbors to the person on the other side of the street, to the person who others don't want to touch, to the person who's been beaten up and left for dead, whether that is in our communities or thousands of miles away. We are called to be a neighbor. And then we see that theme continued through the early church as they, they give of their possessions in order to form community and to help people so that they don't have people among them who are in need. And we see amazing stories in the early church out, um, after the New Testament as well and some fantastic descriptions of the early church and of how generous they were and of how much they gave to the poor. Um, so much so that it really feels like that is part of what it means to be church. And there's one description of a church community that was basically they, they met together, they had a bit of teaching, they broke bread, and then they went out and they gave their collection to the poor. That's just part of being church, is that you, you give to people in poverty. It's as much a part as breaking bread together or anything else. And you may know that there was one Caesar, one emperor, who gets very cross and he talks about these, these impious Christians, he says, who who they not only look after their own poor, but they look after our poor as well. And he's really annoyed about this because they're showing up, everybody else. So the Christians have this reputation that they are the ones who will look after other people. So justice is right at the heart of the scriptures. And it is rooted in this understanding of a God of justice, a God who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and we are called and who calls us to do the same so that's my understanding of god there's a lot more i could draw out so again if you want to ask me anything more or any other aspects then do afterwards secondly my understanding of humanity my understanding of people who are we what does it mean to be human. I've begun to touch on that already as I went back to Genesis 1 and looked at how we have been created to be in relationship. And this is so important. It is a fundamental, it actually it is the absolute part of what it means to be human. We are created to be in relationship. When you look in Genesis 1, you see that we are very similar to the other creatures that are created as you read through Genesis 1. Um, we, we're not alone in being given the, the blessing to go forth and multiply and to fill the earth. Other creatures are given that blessing as well. We all have the breath of God, the life of God in us. If you've ever read the story of God breathing into Adam's nostrils. If you've ever read that and thought that is God kind of giving humanity a soul, that's not, it's not about that. All creatures have the breath of God in them, Genesis 1 tells us. Um, and actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off, so I won't take long here. If you want to think about souls, Biblically, animals have souls as well, not only human beings. And so um, having a soul isn't something that separates us out <laughs> from other creatures. I'm glad that's made you smile. <laughs> so, so we are alike to the other creatures in so many ways. And you notice we don't even have our own day. 
You know, I th wouldn't it have been nice if we'd have been created on a separate day so that we stood out a bit from the other creatures? But we haven't. We're just, we're, we are another creature created on the same day as other land creatures. And we know this scientifically. We, uh, don't quote me on this. This is totally wrong. But, you know, what is it? We share 97% of our DNA with a slug or something. It's not that. But you know what I mean? We are so similar, aren't we, to other creatures. But there is one way in which we're different. And that is that we're created in God's image. And that is what makes us unique. We are created in God's image. And so we are created to reflect God, to be God's image bearers. Created in God's image for me is, is really powerful when it comes to thinking around social justice for, for two reasons. One is that understanding that we are all made in God's image. So it's a real equaliser. Now, in the time when Genesis 1 was likely finding its final form, there was another creation story that was circulating that came from the Babylonians. It's likely that Genesis 1 finally came together as a story when the people of God were in exile in Babylon, which is around the time when you have sort of towards the end of our Old Testament when you've got the prophetic writing. So that sort of time, although for us Genesis 1 is placed at the beginning of the Bible, it most likely came together actually more towards the end of the story that we have in the Old Testament. But it's placed at the beginning not because chronologically it was written first, but because theologically it is so foundational, because it tells us so much about God, about other people, about ourselves, about this world that God has made. And in the Babylonian story, I won't give you the long detail on it, but people were created to be the slaves of the gods. You had these lesser gods that had to had the job of looking after the temples and of sweeping them and uh, keeping the temples clean. The gods were really lazy and they didn't want to have to do that. So they, out of the clay, they formed these creatures called people. They formed people and gave them the job of being the slaves of the gods and of clearing out the temple. So in that Babylonian narrative, people were slaves. Um, they were just created to do the menial work. So they were, they were worthless, they were valueless. And only the king was created in God's image. So the king was absolutely set apart from everybody else. Is that a contrast to what we see here in Genesis 1? That all people are made in God's image, not just the king, but all people. And therefore, all people inherently carry within them deep, deep value and worth. And so, so it's absolutely abhorrent to God that any one of his people, anyone, that any person anywhere in the world should be living in poverty. It's absolutely against God's nature that anyone shouldn't have enough food to eat, that anyone shouldn't have a, a comfortable place to call their home or access to clean water or etc., etc., etc. If we have been made in God's image, then it is absolutely abhorrent that anyone is not able to live in a way that enables them to flourish. So the image of God teaches us that all people are valuable, all people have worth, that people are equal and should be treated as such. It also has a force, kind of in this mirroring, I think, a bit, Jesus, that parable of the Good Samaritan, of kind of turning the image of God understanding on its head and saying to you and saying to me, you are God's image. You are here to represent God and to reflect him. So how are you doing that? How am I doing that? 
do I reflect a God who loves mercy and compassion? Do I reflect a God who walks in humility? Do I reflect a God who lifts people up from the ash heap and from the dust? Do I reflect a God who hates oppression, who acts to see people set free? What kind of God do I reflect? So the image of God is not only important in looking at others and seeing them as being made in God's image, but also turning it on its head and asking, how do I image and reflect a God of justice? And being made in the image of God then picks up on the, the, the third aspect of the relationships that we have been created to be a part of. We've been created to be in relationship with God, with other people, and with the wider natural world. Being made in God's image is so that we might look after the rest of what God has made. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And then depending on your Bible, and you know, I was going to get you looking up all of these verses, and I haven't, I've just rattled through them. So do, I know you're making notes, you might like to have a look at them later. Your Bible translation may say, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And then it might be a comma or a full stop. And let them rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. If you've got the most recent NIV translation, it's changed slightly to say, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So that. And in that change, they're following the thinking of an Old Testament scholar called Chris Wright, who some of you may, may well have read some of his things. And he says that there is a real link between being made in God's image and ruling over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and, and so on. They're not separate things. We're made in God's image so that we might take care of the rest of what God has made. It's it's like God had it in, in God's mind, so to speak, that the final species he created, he would create with the express purpose of taking care of everything else. That's our job. That's why we've been created. And you may well wonder about that word rule. Well, this isn't about looking after, is it? This is about ruling over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. But I just ask you to think about what, really it comes back down to that psalm, what is the kind of ruling that God expected when you think about his words, the, his words to his kings and to his rulers? How did he expect his rulers to behave? He expected them to rule with justice and with mercy and with compassion his kings were to be ones who looked after the widow and the stranger and the orphan and the needy. Ultimately, ruling for God is about servanthood, isn't it? As seen in the servant king. So when we talk about ruling over, uh, again, we tip that on its head, as always happens with the kingdom of God. Ruling is about servanthood. So we are here to be servant rulers of the rest of what God has made. So we are created in God's image and we represent God's fundamental characteristic, which is Trinity, is relationship. And so to be human is to exist in relationship with God, with other people and with the wider natural world. And that is, that for me is the essence of what the Bible is about. It's about seeing those broken relationships damaged through the fall. And then Jesus comes back to restore those relationships. Yes, our relationship with God, but not only. And if we think of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, as being only about an individual's personal relationship with God, as important as that is. But if we stop there, 
we have an emaciated gospel. And I don't want an emaciated gospel. I want the fullness of the gospel. And the fullness is that in Jesus, his death has brought about the reconciliation of all things. Yes, people, I'm not moving away from that. I'm broadening it out. So people are really important, but we're not the only thing that God is concerned about. So our understanding of God, my understanding of God, my understanding of people, humanity, is being made in the image of God. And then finally, my understanding of the world. And, and I want to come back to the, what I've just finished with and ask whether someone could look up Colossians 1. And it sounds like you were praying this in your prayer meeting earlier, <laughs> which is great. With uh, someone, whoever, this is like one of those old-fashioned Bible soldiers, whoever finds it first, would you just like to start reading out verses 15 to 20? Great, yes, thank you. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. So Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20. Um, here it's got a subheading, the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brilliant. Thank you. So I wonder how you've been brought up to think of this world of physical matter. You may well have been brought up with a, a Christian theology that says that this world, you know, it's okay as far as it goes, but it's not really what's intended and it's going to be destroyed um, and we're going to spend our, our goal is to spend our days in heaven and to get as many people there as possible so doing anything that's concerned with this world isn't really part of the Christian faith we need to focus on the Christian spiritual things of prayer and evangelism and worship and Bible reading and those kind of things because this world is going to be destroyed so why bother with it now. I wonder if that reflects the kind of thinking that you may have have been brought up with or have encountered uh, in churches maybe that you've been a part of through your life. <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you have that reflects more the Babylonian creation story than anything that we see in the scriptures. In the Babylonian story, the world is created out of a defeated, vanquished goddess. There's this evil goddess who the other gods have to fight, and she has this hideous army of demons that she gathers around her, and it's all very lurid. And this one big god king called Marduk goes out and kills her and he slices her body into three and out of her body he creates the world out of the three parts the the seas and the land and the air and the description is very graphic out of her breasts he creates the hills uh, you didn't think you were going to hear that this morning did you you never know what words you're going to hear out of her crying eyes, her tears, he creates the rivers and, and so on. But the impact is that the Babylonians implicitly saw the world as evil because it came from an evil goddess. The world was tainted. It wasn't something you really wanted to have anything to do with. But that's not what we get in the scriptures. In Genesis 1, we see that God looked at all that he had made, and what did he say? It was good. good. Very good. 
<laughs> yes. God looks at each individual's day, so to speak, and says it's good. And then he looks at everything and he says it's very good. That's such a far cry from saying that this world is rubbish and is going to be discarded. God absolutely loves this world. And that Colossians passage speaks into it so much. This world was created by Jesus. It's not just an Old Testament God thing. We have it right in the New Testament as well. This, this is a Jesus thing. This world was created by Jesus and for Jesus, almost like a present from the Father to the Son. And in Jesus and through Jesus, you have all these prepositions that come through those verses. And Jesus' blood shed on the cross was not, or Jesus' blood was not only shed on the cross to reconcile people to God. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross to reconcile all things to God. And so as I look in the scriptures, I see that there is such a link between God and the people and the whole created order. And that's why right back in my early adult life, as I was discovering around justice and discovering around environmental care, I then discovered that you actually had to hold those things together and they went hand in hand because you can't care for people without caring about the land they live off and the air they breathe and the seas that they fish in. And you can't care about the wider natural world without thinking about the people that live in it and that impact it, whether through their absolute poverty and so their need to cut down trees for firewood to, in order to cook their food, or through their absolute wealth, which is, and this is where we come in, which is causing so much problem. So when we're thinking about justice, we must remember that that always involves an environmental dimension. And that's not just on a global scale. We see it here too. People living in poverty are, will be the ones who are most impacted by environmental problems. And environmental problems impact people in poverty most. And that will be locally, nationally, as well as globally. So we hold these things together linking always between people and the rest of creation. So our understanding of God, our understanding of people, our understanding of the wider world, those are some pretty big things that we've just covered this morning. And, and I haven't touched on the practical side, and, that, and we can have a look at that and we can discuss that. But I'm going to pause with that because I think I've probably given you enough and I'm going to suggest that you take maybe just five minutes in your tables to chat about that. Was any of that new? Was there anything in that that struck you particularly? Anything that you disagreed with? Anything that you'd like to ask about or know a bit more about? Was there, is there any, anything that I haven't touched on, anything else that you would like to ask about, that's open as well. So let's take five minutes in your tables and then we'll come back and we'll have some discussion together. Right, do you want to start to look this way? Good to, good to hear all your discussions. Thank you. Thank you for engaging. So, so really, this is just over to you for the next 15 minutes or so and just open for discussion, questions, comments, anything, anything you'd like to say or to ask. I ought to check. Will it need to go into the mic, Christy? If you just repeat the question. Oh, yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. There's a sort of range of questions in, in that. How do you, I think essentially it comes down to your final question, how do you balance the, the challenge and the stark reality of where we are also with the notion of Christian hope and the renewal of all things? Um, and, I, and I would say that's a question I live with pretty much every day <laughs> and I'm not sure that I've found the answer to it there uh, but I do know that I have 
moved over the last however many years from talk so for quite a lot of years i was i've been talking about it talking about our environmental crisis in kind of predictive language and using a lot of language of hope so i've been involved in tours got hope for hope for hope for planet earth i can't remember what it was called but you know tours around that with other people and and it was very much there's a crisis coming this is what's predicted we still have time we still have hope if we act now so take action in essence was the was the message probably three four five years ago i really um at tier fund actually i haven't talked anything about my work at tier fund have i at tier fund one of the things that i get is a daily roundup of the news the media team sends me a list of all the headlines and so i see that every day it was probably about three years ago i was looking through the daily news roundup and i realized with a sickening thud that everything i'd been talking about as predictions was happening uh, things i'd been talking about around environmental refugee crisis around um, increasing hunger because because of climate around rising sea levels increasing extreme weather events and the impact of that pushing people further back into poverty all of that i could see it all in the headlines and i thought my goodness i've i need to move from prediction to reality this is happening now so i say that just to reinforce the absolute seriousness of what we are in we are, we're not heading for a climate crisis we are in a climate crisis and we may feel we're heading for it that's because we're in a very privileged position for most people or many people around the world they've been in a climate crisis for some years now so how do you hold that hand in hand with a clear message around christian hope and that god will act and all things will be renewed i don't know other than to say that when i look in the scriptures when i look at paul's teaching whenever he talks about sort of future end times stuff he always does it followed by this little word therefore therefore live today this is how you live today so in the light of where of what the future is going to be therefore live live as children of the light therefore live as my word for it is living parables i want to i do see a future that we get a glimpse of in revelation 21 and 22 where there will be no more mourning as in m-o-u-r-n no more sickness no more suffering it's a very physical future there's trees with leaves there's a river it's a kind of earthy physical heavenly wonderful picture so i do see that coming but the the force of that isn't then for me to say oh well that's going to be all right then i'll just sit back and wait for that to happen the force of that is to say to me i want to live my life now in light of that reality and i want to live my life kind of grabbing handfuls of the future and trying to make it a reality as much as possible and that's what it means to live in to use kind of complicated theological language what we talk about the overlapping of the ages where we have seen some of the victory we've jesus has been resurrected and so we do see some of that now we have the first fruits of the holy spirit we taste some of that now and we live in the light of that now but we know we won't see it fully until the future until till the lord returns back here and although we are in a climate crisis how we act now will still determine how bad the crisis gets so it's not a fatalistic oh we'll just throw up our hands because there's no point doing anything now even if we have already gone past some points of no return which we have still what action we take today will impact 
what the future is like. So it is all still to play for, <laughs> and we do still need to keep taking action. I don't know if that's, the, if that's helpful, but that's, that's what I, I live with that all the time. So <laughs> thank you for asking. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Just f for anyone listening, um, picking up on Romans 8 and the language around all creation being subjected to frustration and groaning, waiting for the children of God to be revealed. And you're absolutely right. It's waiting for, for us to step into our, prep, into our proper places and to be the children of God and to do what God has called us to do. And, and then creation will be set free because we'll be looking after it properly and exercising that servant rule. And that very much ties in as we look towards the future because, because we, we live that now, but we know we won't live it fully until, until Jesus returns. And so it is living with that tension. Um, and just to build on that, there's, I don't think I'll be able to quote it properly, there's a wonderful quote by a Catholic theologian called Peter Hocken, who talks about how the Holy Spirit stretches us um, between the past and the present. And we're, we're stretched, and, and I feel that stretching because we see part of it now, and we know, we taste glimpses now, don't we? We see some of it now, and yet we won't see it fully until, until Jesus returns. And it's the Holy Spirit in our lives who enables us to live with that tension and who puts those first fruits in our lives and, and enables us to live with that stretching. Thank you. Great questions. Yeah, um, the first thing I would suggest would be to sign up to Eco Church, which is a brilliant scheme for all denominations. I can see some smiles, so I don't know whether that's been... <laughs> Fab. <laughs> and really, that is your one-stop shop for for everything and we'll give you all of the resources and the the tips it's uh, it's an award scheme so you can work towards be becoming bronze silver and then gold who knows and it looks at five areas your worship and teaching how you manage your buildings and your land and if you don't have buildings or land that's fine takes it out which actually then makes it even simpler because you've got less to get through and then your political um sorry, local and, uh, local and global engagement, and then thinking around how you live as individuals. And it's got lots of tips and lots of advice in there. So that, that is where I would go from here. In terms... Yeah, I can be. No, that's why I was getting confused. <laughs> but you see, I think mission and justice should be together. That's why it should be five areas. <laughs> Just took me a while to think of that. <laughs> so I'd have a look at Eco Church and sign up, go through the questionnaire because that would just give you lots of ideas. And in terms of the practical, what well, I often talk about us as standing in the gap. And this comes back down to this question, how do we stand in the gap between where we are now and where we want to be? And we stand in the gap by giving, acting and praying. And um, for me, this works on an individual level and on a church level as well. So giving is really important. You probably know that Jesus talked about money more than anything else other than the kingdom of God in the Gospels. So what we do with our money as individuals and as churches counts and is important. Acting, take action, whether through those individual daily things that we can do, but actually the big change will come by calling on governments and businesses to be putting into place policies and practices, that's a lot of P's, that work in favour of the world's poor and of the natural world. So we need to be taking actions in our own lives because that they will make a difference. But uh, alongside that, we need to be calling on governments and businesses to act as well because they can put in place those big systemic changes. 
And we can do that individually and in terms of us as a church, acting together as a church. You know, get your local MP in. Talk to them about the, the climate crisis around holding the government to account for the climate commitments that it's made. Uh, talk to your MP about what it's, what's happening in your local area. I mean, you'll know the different issues here more than I will. So engage, engage the authorities um, in order to bring about those big changes. And then prayer. Prayer, I really believe, is so important. And I do believe that prayer changes things, again, individually and, uh, and as a church. So praying together, have these things on your agenda when you pray. So stand in the gap, give, act, and pray. Well. <laughs> Perfectly timed, my goodness. <laughs> Let me tell you <laughs> about <laughs> that. <laughs> Sadly, I don't have so many of these because I've run out, so I've got more of some of the others. But this is my, my latest book, is Planet Protectors, 52 Ways to Look After God's World. And it is written for primary school-aged children. And I co-wrote it with a chap called Paul Carenza, who's a comedian and a BBC scriptwriter, wrote the script for Miranda and Going Out and some of those, and he's just brilliant. So, it, and it's all illustrated, it's got sort of fun illustrations and it's, uh, and Paul, Paul has written it, I gave him all the material and then Paul wrote it, so it's fun and it's quirky and it's really challenging, but it's done in a really fun way. So this is just, perfect for primary school <laughs> aged children i've got i've only got four copies but it's very available online well can i can i tell you about the other things i've bought yeah. while we <laughs> while we're on that topic and i've got lots of copies of the other ones this book just living faith and community in an age of consumerism is really asking the question how do we live well as christians in a consumer age so we're called to be formed in the likeness of Christ, but we live in a culture that bombards us with messages to be conformed in the likeness of, of consumerism, and how do we deal with that challenge? So there, um, there's a lot in there, and lots of practical things as well. Then saying yes to life was the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book a couple of years ago, and it picks up actually on a lot of what I've touched on with the, the interplay between Genesis 1 and the Babylonian creation narrative and what we can learn from that. And it's, um, it's, at, or it's for individual reading, but it's done in six chapters and is designed also to be used for church study. So it might be something that you could do as a church. It's got discussion questions at the end of each chapter and um, and it goes through Genesis 1, exploring what was made on each day and looking beyond that. And then kind of the companion to Planet Protectors. So this, this would be great for secondary school age children and adults is L is for lifestyle, a Christian living that doesn't cost the earth. And this is a really practical look at, at what can we actually do in our lives. So... It goes through the alphabet, takes an issue for each letter, uh, has a, each chapter's very short. Um, it's sometimes what I call a toilet book. You can put it in your toilet. <laughs> and depending, depending on the length of a sitting, I wouldn't like to comment, it, you may read a chapter in a sitting, who knows? You can try and let me know. But it's very short, and each chapter finishes with two or three very clear action points, so you can go away and do something about it. Recycled. Yes. Yeah, it will be. I bought, yeah, it's been sort of completely rewritten with new... Um, all the new, everything brought up to date, new statistics and everything. Yeah, so it was first written, I think, 15, 17, nearly 20 years ago. So it's, yeah, a lot has changed over those years. So um, they're all over there. Um, these three 
are on a very special offer if you buy all three for a seriously um, very reduced cost. Um, sadly, I couldn't put that one in because I haven't got enough to be able to do if you buy all four, but they are there. Um, do, do have a look. Uh, there's cash if you want cash, but also the, the possibly the easiest thing, I haven't got a credit card thing or anything, but it all goes to Tier Fund. So I've put Tier Fund's bank details and you can just do a transfer when you take the books or take a picture and do a transfer later. Yeah, um, there is definitely a change, uh, no doubt about it. So when I look at Eco Church, which, which I started up six or so years ago, uh, and I'm now not so involved with it because my work with Tear Farm, but when I look at how that has grown, there, I think there are now 6,000 churches that are signed up with it. Um, nearly all of the Church of England dioceses are involved. So there are, it's grown a lot. So this is now much more mainstream than it was 30 years ago, for sure. Uh, the very fact that I'm here talking with you 20 or so years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, the kind of church network that we're from, we wouldn't have had this. And that, that has shifted a lot in recent years as well. So of course, there's still a long way to go, but there is a change. And yes, signing petitions does work. Um, we, part of what I oversee at Tear Fund is the advocacy and the campaigning side. And we, when we're, when we're taking on a particular issue, our approach is that we'll be doing quite a lot behind the scenes, meeting with government ministers and sort of talking, taking that approach. But we also really need to be able to show the government ministers that there's a movement of public opinion underneath. And those campaign signing things um, play a part and contribute to that as well. So it is worth using your voice. I, I would also say, as controversial as it is, that peaceful civil disobedience uh, is also a tactic that works. And whilst I know that it's controversial, I think it needs to be part of the part of the toolkit, if you like, that brings about change. So I know it's not for everybody, but I do think it plays a part in bringing about social change. It's very invisible. Sorry? It's very invisible. Yeah. Very visible. Right, yeah. Right, with one of the depots. Yeah, yeah. So I know, you know, I, I know they are disruptive and they are a pain and they are a nuisance and they do disrupt everyday life. And I sometimes think back to Rosa Parks when she sat in that bus and, oh, and Chloe's wearing a Rosa Parks t-shirt. And I sometimes think back to Rosa Parks when she sat in the seats for white people and because of her faith, she didn't move. Do you know that was disruptive? You know, the people on those buses, they were ordinary people, working, good working class, good working people who were tired and wanted to go home. How dare she do that? She disrupted the lives of ordinary people. And yet look what happened. So it's painful, but sometimes we do need that disruption to, to wake us up. Right, on that note, I'm gonna finish. <laughs>